Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm happy you're with me this afternoon. I wanted to share a couple of, of, of things uh, before we get started today with some new content. <clears throat> One is that I, I, I know that if you've been with me in previous sessions, you know that I come right from a treatment center here locally, uh, Beginnings Treatment Center, and I, I uh, lead a, a group right before I come in each week. And oftentimes I'll pilot the material that we share here with the group to um, kind of work out the kinks and also be able to add some real life examples from uh, you know, applications uh, to people's lives in recovery. And uh, there were a couple of members in the group today that said that they had viewed uh, uh, some of our previous addiction, uh, Ask an Addiction Specialist podcasts over the last week or two. And they, they said, uh, it's the first time we've ever seen you, Dr. Bob, sit in a chair and not move around. <laughs> We just laughed about it. I know that when I teach groups, I typically uh, stand up and I move around. I like to move into people's space. And I also just like, uh, I like, uh, uh, just it's, I think I must be Italian this way. I love expressing myself. And even though today I'm the one-armed one -armed bandito again, I've got this, uh, I'll stand up so you can see it. I've got a sling on, on one shoulder as it's healing from uh, rotator cuff surgery. I still like to be active. And so I thought it was fun. Uh, uh, to, to get their feedback. And I, it made me aware that if you've been watching these podcasts, you probably have a certain view of me as being kind of inactive as I sit in this chair. And I just want you to know that that's not typically my behavior. <laughs> the other thing that we laughed about is they said that you're more contained or restrained or whatever the word was uh, when you're on camera, Dr. Bob. And I said, well, uh, Austin and Franz, who are the co-producers along with Odie here, uh, they know that we've talked about this over the months now, is that uh, I come in and I'm speaking to you right now. I'm speaking to a, 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 an isolated camera that stares at me. And I said, I, I, I've never been the best at that. I really, I engage with people, you know, in terms of uh, probably the energy and the nonverbal presence of people so powerfully. And so it's taken me some practice to learn how to even emote, like express variations and feelings and so on as I stare into a camera. So I have to imagine that you're there as my audience. And I know some of, of the regular attendees. I know them by face and by name. And so I imagine oftentimes, as best I can, that I'm speaking to you. And so I'm hoping that some of that humanity comes through. I, I think Austin and Franz can verify this as I probably have gotten a little bit better or at least a little bit more comfortable with this over time. So here we are in a studio circumstance with me sitting very still and talking to you through a camera. So I hope some of, some, some of uh, the human feeling comes through as we talk about uh, where we go. I also want to invite you, uh, and this actually sets up the next uh, slide actually, I want to invite you to submit questions today as we're going through the material. Uh, I want to invite you to engage in any way possible. You're welcome to submit questions through the uh, podcast, Ask an Addiction Specialist, or if you're watching it through YouTube or some other channel, we use a, a bunch of different forms of access. Really invite you during real in real time to interact with me today. Um, Odie and the others have set up a screen where any questions you send in will be sent to me and I can respond to those. And it gives me at least the facsimile of being in an interaction with you. And I highly value that. When I teach classes, including the group today, it's very dialogical. It's very, very much a give and take. And uh, I think the material is enriched by the interaction. So I really invite that today. And I'll do the best I can as I try each week to weave in your questions into the material that I've prepared ahead of time because I think it enlivens the material and so hopefully makes it more relevant to you as well. So. Um, I want to also address uh, a topic. This, we're talking about addiction and recovery here. I realize that some in my audience are in recovery themselves, like the two gentlemen I mentioned earlier. Some of you may actually be in active addiction and viewing this material. I'm hoping it will be helpful in terms of swaying your, uh, uh, your opinion or your motivation to seek recovery. Some of you will be loved ones of those that are either in active addiction or in recovery. And I intend for this to, uh, to, to touch uh, as broad a swath as possible. I should add also, there are those of you that are watching, I know this from, uh, from interactions during our time together as well as after. Some of you are uh, actually in the recovery field of helping those that are uh, individuals who are sincerely seeking recovery. So I'm hoping that the material 
cuts, cuts a broad enough path that you'll find some practical application for yourself in the material. And one of the things I'm aware of is for the last several weeks, we've been focusing explicitly on shame. And I talk about it in terms of unshaming. The group that I lead on Wednesdays, just today, I call it the unshaming group. And and let me just pause for just a second to, re to revisit something that we've discussed in past sessions. But if you're coming in today new, it might help be helpful to orient you. What are we doing talking about shame in the context of Ask an Addiction Specialist? And I'll, and I'll say briefly what it is that we discuss in each week's group that I lead before I come here. Why is it that shame is relevant to recovery? And at this point, clients have learned the material enough to know that the single uh, strongest trigger for relapse is stress. There's tons of research to verify that. And then furthermore, there's tons of research to verify that the single greatest stressor for most individuals is an interpersonal stressor, specifically shame. So what do I mean by shame? Well, I mean two things by shame. Any threat to social acceptance leaves us with a, a reaction. It's a very strong reaction oftentimes that will manifest as a stress response. Any threat to my being accepted by you or you accepted by me will kick up our stress levels. And this relates to shame, the idea that I'm going to be marginalized or shunned, kicked out of the group. And the flip side of that that's also uh, uh, right at the heart of shame is the threat to self-esteem that being kicked out of the group poses. And I'll ask the groups that I lead, why would that be so stressful? Why, would it, why, why do I care if I'm kicked out of the group or not? And the response is now, we've gotten to where we've understood this, is that it goes right to the heart of an evolutionary drive, which is to be part of a group for survival. And we're not so evolved as a species yet to not need one another. Maybe that'll never be the case. We need each other literally for survival. And it's not so, so long ago that it was absolutely for physical survival. Uh, a clan was better able to protect itself against aggressors, where it would be other animals or other uh, warring uh, uh, parties, tribes, or whatever, and that we need each other for that kind of protection. And we certainly do in the early years of our development. We're absolutely reliant on caregivers. And so it's it's wound deeply into our biological mechanisms to, to seek engagement and um, an enduring connection. And when that's threatened, it will manifest as an alarm response. How that manifests physiologically is our cortisol levels go up skyrocket along with adrenaline. These are the two key stress hormones. And the single greatest elevator of cortisol is a threat to social acceptance slash threat to so self-esteem. There are over 200 studies that have verified this. So if the single greatest trigger for relapse is stress, and the stressor that's most associated with the highest elevation of stress levels is shame, then you can see why it's valuable and important that we focus on what can we do to reduce shame, or what I call unshaming, what can we do to reduce shame for the sake of protecting sobriety and preventing relapse. So that then situates us in this topic that we've been looking at in depth uh, for the last several weeks. We're gonna continue with that today as a brief review Last week, we looked at shame in, in uh, relationships, particularly patterns in relationships that develop that, that reinforce a shamed identity. We're going to take that even further today. Today's topic is healing the black hole of shame. And I want to take a moment here to uh, give homage to the great physicist Stephen Hawking, who just passed away this last week, who himself wrote a great deal about black holes, and we'll be talking about black holes in a as a psychological analogy today, but that uh, we're going to discuss how it is that these relationship patterns that we discussed last week can create lasting templates or blueprints in our personalities, where ironically and tragically, we end up repeating the same patterns over and over again that we inherited oftentimes from early on. We end up repeating those in later development. Uh, and so patterns that are based in a shame-oriented identity, which we're going to unpack today, end up repeating themselves in disappointing and uh, dysfunctional relationships later on, all of which serve as the bedrock for many of us of addiction. So the connection is how, what can we do to understand, identify, define shame? How can we understand shame's appearance in relationships? How can we look at how those relationships form neural networks in our brains where we actually anticipate and even worse, evoke 
continuing shaming interactions, which make us incredibly vulnerable. For any of us that have been addicted to substance, makes us incredibly vulnerable because the substance oftentimes is a form of self-medicating against the shame that is a function of deep, uh, lasting patterns in the psyche. And the bottom line, we had one uh, question today, one of, the, one of the clients in the group today said, what can we do to change this, these patterns? And I looked at him and I said, that's the million dollar question right there. It's not enough to identify these patterns, although it's critical. Uh, but the next step is what can we do to make uh, make for change? And the good news is that there's some real, there's some really practical, concrete, rubber meets the road things that we can do. And we're going to be talking about that today. So we'll be talking about healing that black hole of shame today. Let's start with this assertion. This is from psychology, is that for many of us, for most of us, the development of a shamed identity where our self-esteem is impaired and we, we're afraid of getting kicked out. We're afraid of being alone. We're afraid of being isolated. We're afraid of being seen as incompetent. Um, it reminds me right now that years ago there was a study done in the U.S. of what are, what are people's greatest secrets. And three were identified at the top of the heap. And here they are. The first one is that we're, we're, uh, we're afraid to let people know, uh, we're ashamed to let people know how uh, alone we feel. And so this gets right back to that threat of social acceptance. I may feel alone. I may feel out, uh, out of the group, but I can't possibly let you know that. It's too vulnerable. So that's the first secret. The second secret is, uh, the second greatest secret that we have, it's virtually universal, is I can't possibly know, let you know areas in which I feel incompetent or an imposter. And so we don't want to let people know where our limitations are in terms of competence. And the third secret is related to sexual secrets. It's that sexual secrets are virtually um, universal. And I, th the way I think about that is that we have, first of all, I think of sexuality as being so personal, so deeply private. I tend to think of sexuality as being also sacred, is that, is that, that anything that, that is in my sexual history or my sexual attractions or my sexual behavior that I perceive to deviate from the norm, the last thing that I want you to know is to know about that. And so I won't let you in. So you can see how all three of these Secrets about being alone, secrets about being incompetent, and secrets about our most private selves in terms of sexuality. All three of these are informed by our proneness to shame. So if we look at this assertion from psychology, that the origins of our shame are oftentimes an early development. We develop these secrets about ourselves early on. Let me ask you a question. Why would that be the case? Why would shame have its roots in early development? Think about that for a second. There's a couple of answers that come to my mind. One is that if you think of the foundational blueprints for all of our relational life, being in the, our earliest relationships, typically in whatever caregiving environment we've had, it stands to reason that those kind of foundational uh, patterns or expectations uh, perceptions of ourselves, perceptions of the world would be laid down early on in our development. Here's the crazy part about it is that these are laid down uh, typically in the first three years of our development, much of which is characterized by being pre-verbal. We don't have uh, really great verbal acuity in the first year or even two years of our lives, and yet these expectations are being laid down in terms of the, the actual behaviors within our, within our care, caregiving environments. And so you can look at the impact of those early relationships. The examples we gave today was if you've experienced a double message from those that would care, take care of you, double message being uh, someone, um, uh, the, the expectation being that person is there to protect you and they don't protect you. In other words, if you experience abuse at the hands of a caregiver, there's a double message there. I'm going to protect you, but I'm not doing that. Or the, the, the anticipation that we be loved. And so, for example, if I use a parent as an example, a parent that communicates verbally that I love you while they abandon the child emotionally or invade or somehow abuse that child emotionally, physically, sexually. Again, you get this double message. And the, here's the bind, you all, is that it's not enough that you're getting a double message, but there's no child, especially in early development on the planet, that will question the caregiver. And why is that? 
Why won't the child question the caregiver? It's not possible, if you think about it this way, one author puts it this way, is that that parenting figure has survival value. I can't possibly challenge that individual because I rely on them. And so what I'll do is I'll internalize the crazy double message. And the, the double message might be, even though this person says they love me, what they show me by their behavior is that they abandon me or they invade me. And that comes to be equated with love. There's a distortion that develops in terms of self-perception and other perception. And so that becomes the beginnings of a blueprint or a template for what expectations are in future relationships. And so one piece of the primacy of our early development is its, is, is, is its earliness. There's a second piece that I want to talk about that about, and that has to do with stages versus stages. What I want to assert here is that compassion is not yet a reliable stage in most our families growing up. We have a long ways to go in terms of human development. And there's a lot of woundedness existent in most families and nowhere more so than families of those that have experienced addiction. In fact, the research is out is that the, uh, uh, the population of those that have experienced addiction, including those in recovery, that across the board, statistically, this population has a higher level of what are called adverse childhood experiences than in the general population. Enough so that when I'm standing in a room of those that are in early recovery from addiction and ask what their sense is in terms of their own backgrounds, their own familial early nurturing backgrounds around stress, and I ask them, how many of you have experienced abnormally high levels of adverse childhood experiences or trauma uh, in your own judgment? And virtually always the entire group will raise their hands. And when one or two don't raise their hands, in fact, that happened today, one individual didn't raise his hand and he said, it wasn't until later in his life in adolescence that he began to experience some seriously dysfunctional relationships. And I don't distrust him, I don't doubt that. In fact, as I told him today, he's the exception that proves the rule. But for the, in the main, in the main, individuals that have experienced suffering with addiction end up uh, coming from uh, very difficult, oftentimes traumatic backgrounds. How does that show up in addiction? Here's what the research suggests, is that with early exposure to trauma, in terms of, of emotional neglect, abandonment, or abuse, is that what it will do is it will create a, I think of it as a bath of stress hormones, is that individual will grow up with a higher than normal baseline level for stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. And there's research to support this. And so that individual grows up through adolescence into adulthood, carrying a higher level of stress. If you think about it, it's almost like having a fight or flight reaction stuck on. In response to a traumatic environment, in comes the red alert, and that red alert becomes the baseline. That becomes the normal. And so it stands the reason, as one client of mine said, uh, said, said to me, there's not a one of us, Bob, that can stand to barbecue in our own adrenaline. That image has stayed with me, is that if I'm stuck in red alert as a function of experiencing higher than normal amounts of childhood adverse experiences or trauma, and I'm stuck in that red alert or that high adrenaline mode, there's none of us that can sustain that. And for the populations I work with, which includes myself in terms of those who have experienced addiction and are now seeking recovery, it is nearly universal that we have found a way to medicate or modify that stress level by virtue of substance. And so it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see the connection between what's referred to as the self-medication hypothesis and addiction. So what do I mean by stages versus states? Is that if I'm saying that compassion and let's just say healthy parenting is not a universal, in fact, it's not a reliable stage in most of our families. What I mean by that is that most of us, if we're fortunate, have experienced states of being loved, of being nurtured, of being supported, of being affirmed, of being seen and valued. Most of us experience temporary states of that, even in the most dysfunctional families. There's oftentimes some good that comes through. The problem is that state has not transferred into being a stable stage. So I can have a state experience, which is a momentary experience of someone loving me, even a parent that maybe a good bit of the time is abandoning 
or in other ways uh, uh, invading or traumatizing. I can have moments of being loved by that person. The problem is, is it's not a stable stage. And all I mean by stage is you can think of it as like, there's not a foundation for me to have a reliable expectation of that parent providing the kind of nurturance that is oxygen to the developing child in, in, into adulthood. <sighs> and so as I say, we, we, many of us, especially those of us that are familiar with addiction, know what it's like to not be able to count on reliable responsiveness, emotional responsiveness from the people that matter most to us. Let me ask you another question. Why is it, do you think, that shame locates itself most powerfully in our closest relationships? I had a gentleman today after today's group who came up to me and he said, Bob, I've sat in many of your groups. He's, he's been through two uh, cycles of treatment at the treatment center. And I value this man uh, dearly because he's, he's doing really committed work right now in his recovery. And he said, I've been in all of your groups and today was the best group ever. And he said, one of the things that I found really valuable was this point. He says, I've never gotten that before. That is, why is it that, sh that shame locates itself in the relationships that matter the most? The example I gave is that most of us don't have massive amounts of interpersonal difficulty or challenge with people that we don't care about. For example, the examples I gave were like a, a, a grocery clerk. Chances are you're not going to be deeply affected by an interaction, even a mildly unpleasant one with somebody like a grocery clerk or a gas station attendant. It will be by the people that are nearest and dearest to us. And so I ask you, as I ask the group today, why would that be the case? Why would it be the case that it's the people closest to me? I found this over the years of doing therapy and coaching. People will come in and sit, sit with me and they'll say, if it wasn't for my wife or my husband or my son or my daughter, I'd be perfectly happy in my life. 90% of my grief comes from our, my relationship with them. And though I would never say this, one of my thoughts is, well, duh. <laughs> it's, it's the relationships that matter the most to us that affect us. And why is that? Well, it's implied in what we talked about earlier. Uh, the longings. And the wounds that are laid down most deeply have been in our primary relationships. It's where we go for nurturance. It's where we go for, for nourishment. It's where we go for oxygen. And when those fail us, it leaves us particularly vulnerable. Because think about it. You don't bring great longings to an intimate, uh, authentic relationship necessarily when you're checking out your groceries at the grocery store, right? You might, but I doubt it. But when it comes to partners in relationship, whether it's good friends, romantic partners, uh, or family members, it's almost impossible that we don't bring a whole set of strivings or longings for authentic connection. And when those aren't satisfied, in other words, where old disappointments are revived by virtue of current disappointments, then those old wounds rise to the surface. Somebody gave me this analogy years ago, and I remember it, and I have to, have to rely on your own experience to kind of fill this out. I understand that back on the East Coast, I've lived most of my life on the West Coast, there are what are called rain barrels. And let's just assume there are. I've never seen a rain barrel, but I live in an area that's basically a desert except for irrigation. And apparently the idea with rain barrels is they're there to collect rain. And what gets collected in the rain barrels uh, also along the way are leaves, when leaves fall down from trees. And so the metaphor, the image is this, is that those leaves fall down into a rain barrel when it's empty. So when the rain comes in, the rain begins to fill up the barrel and it dislodges these leaves that were at the bottom of the barrel and those rise to the surface. And so there's... <laughs> There's a rain barrel. There's an image of the rain barrel right there. Dad Navin, I've never seen one before. So a rain barrel has a little gutter going down. Now I'm speaking with great expertise. Thank you, us. <laughs> that tickles me. And so the idea is that is that when the rain comes in, it dislodges the, the leaves. They're lighter, I guess. They ride on top of the water, and they rise to the surface, and those are the first things to go over the edge of that infamous rain barrel. Well, I hope the analogy follows, even if you haven't seen rain barrels, and I haven't really seen one until today, is that it's that way in relationships. Most of my frustrations, most of my vulnerabilities in relationship, they lie dormant as long as I avoid intimate relationships. 
In fact, I have a relative who, who told me after, after a succession of failed relationships on my part, um, said, uh, Bobby, why would you risk being hurt again in relationship? Why would you bother falling in love again with, with a new woman when all you've ever known is, is disappointment and hurt? And that wasn't far from the truth, but I remember the response being, what's the alternative? Is that we all seek love and we all seek connection, and I'd just like to do it a little bit more intelligently this time. Thank you very much. But I understand the concern there is that, you know, if, if there's no rain going in the barrel, there's no risk of leaves coming up and being dislodged. They're all moldy and mildewed and all that kind of stuff. Who wants those stinking leaves? But unless we dislodge those and can purge the barrel of the old leaves, we won't have room for any fresh water. And the fact is, is that we go through that process in intimate relationships. If you risk intimacy, and if you've been wounded in an intimate relationship, and I would surmise that most of us have been wounded, and in fact, most of our deepest wounds emotionally arise in relationship because we're fundamentally a social being, uh, we need each other. Uh, is that you risk the leaves being dislodged and they're going to come up. And so it's really not fair to indict your partner, let's say a, a close emotional relationship, for being the problem in your life because the alternative would be to just isolate yourself and never experience that disappointment. And the good news is you might not experience that pain coming up. The bad news is there'll be no healing of the pain. Because my own view, and I think this is supported by attachment theory in psychology, is whatever heals traumatic relationship must come in the form of non-traumatic, or let's put it differently, healthy relationship. It's relationship that will heal relationship, and it's hard to get there any other way. Ah, so we've been wounded. So we have these leaves. Let's talk a little bit about what happens on the heels of these wounds. I come into relationship. I'm going to risk having some new water in my rain barrel. And the leaves get dislodged. And what do I do? Well, I'll blame the person in my life that is evoking the pain because it's the intimate relationship that's evoking the pain. And in some cases, it's another dysfunctional relationship, and it's understandable, but it doesn't have to be dysfunctional because we bring these templates to relationship. Somebody mentioned it in the group today. This individual said, he said, if I've been cheated on in relationship, he says, the problem is, is I bring that expectation to new relationships, even a relationship where I'm not at risk of being cheated on. And then we had a brief discussion of self-fulfilling prophecy. The crazy part is, is if he or I bring to new relationship the probability, the expectation that I will be cheated on, chances are that I'm at risk of recreating that possibility by alienating my partner who in fact might, in fact, might want to seek another relationship for relief and the self-fulfilling prophecy is it comes to pass. It doesn't have to be that way, but those vulnerabilities, whether it's being cheated on, somehow betrayed, somehow invaded, somehow abandoned, we bring those expectations to relationship and lo and behold when those arise, we'll do what psychology calls projection. We'll project blame onto the individual in our lives. And the tricky part of this is that the projection of blame feels like it's a fact. Psychology has a technical term for this. It's called psychic equivalence. This comes from a theory in psychology called mentalization. And the idea in, in mentalization theory is until I develop the ability to mentalize, and to put that into English, until I develop the ability to step back for my reactions and look at them a bit more objectively. And it might well take working with a therapist or coach to develop that skill because very few of us can stand out of ourselves simply or easily, especially around these deep wounds in the psyche. Until I can do that, I'm going to be at risk of projecting the blame onto you for my discomfort and actually what my experience is of, of feeling under threat it becomes equivalent with my reality. There's not an intervening variable there to go, this could be old reactions for me. These old reactions are current. I had a supervisor, Bonnie Badenoch, who put it this way, Bob, the amygdala, which is the fear center in the brain, has no timestamp. What did Bonnie mean by that? She says that when there's a trauma in the present that evokes memory of trauma in the past, there's no timestamp, and so that past trauma is right now in this moment. Uh, I see that there's a question I'll get to in just a second. If you think of PTSD, and all of us have encountered at least movie versions of PTSD, if you haven't encountered it more personally, I just uh, watched a movie recently in which there was a, uh, a car backfired, 
And when the car backfired, the protagonist uh, went into a crouch position, to a fight or flight position. And it was a function of PTSD in his life. So he had, he had inherited trauma from the past. And when that car backfired in the moment, it evoked bombs going off in Afghanistan for him. But there's no timestamp. In that moment, the backfiring car is a bomb going off in Afghanistan. And that's the way it is for us in our psyches, is that when something gets evoked in terms of trauma in the present relationship, oftentimes there's absolutely no buffer between that past experience and what's getting evoked in the moment. And we'll assume that what's going on in the moment is equivalent to the past, that's psychic equivalence, and then we'll project blame or responsibility onto who to us feels like the guilty party, which would be the significant other. I'm gonna pause for a second. I see a couple questions. I'm gonna read those and then be back to, uh, to see if we can weave those in. One of them comes from a mysterious man named Mr. Austin. He says, thank you, Austin, for reminding me. Please uh, leave questions, and I noticed that somebody has. Please leave questions, thoughts, comments uh, as we're going along. And I really want to do make a plea for this. If you, if you value what we're doing, please consider sharing what we're doing, even as we're sharing it to others uh, in your life. And I'll tell you why. We're trying to get the word out and expand the support for this, uh, for this program and other programs like it. And so you really... Uh, especially in the new Facebook algorithm, Austin and Franz tell me, it really requires reaching out to a community and creating more of an organic support for this. And so at the risk of sounding completely self-serving, I will be completely self-serving and ask you to please get the word out. So engage with me as much as you can. I appreciate any questions. And also engage your friends in this, please. Put out the word to your friends. Thank you, Austin. Yeah, yeah. I hope that's not too heavy-handed. I don't mind being reminded because I want to remind you guys. I really want to continue this series and your support will help that to happen. Now, there was another comment. You can't heal what you can't feel. Thank you for helping us feel more. That's great. That makes me happy to have you say that. And uh, I agree with you. I love that saying, you can't heal what you can't feel. Feeling is half the battle won. In fact, I believe what we're doing here and laying out the contours of shame and beginning to define it clearly and then begin to root it. We're going to finish with an exercise here in a few minutes for the day. Every time that we meet, I want to locate, if I can, this material in two ways. I want to locate it cognitively. I feel like good information is psychoactive. And so part of my responsibility is psychoeducation. It's to present education that will change uh, your view of yourself, your view of others in your lives, and that matters a lot to me. It's why I cite research studies. It's why I do my homework in between each week is that I think good information is important. Here's the trick, though, you guys. It's not sufficient. Good information is not sufficient. And why is that? Because we've got, two, uh, we've got two halves of our brains. Part of our brain is the left brain that manages information, but the part that is probably the most significant in guiding our lives and certainly the most significant in recovery is right brain to right brain communication, which is in the realm of feeling is that if we don't feel this material, if we don't internalize it, if we can't locate shame as something other than an abstract concept, then we'll be ill-served because the information won't go deep enough. And for it to really go deep enough, we've got to locate ourselves personally in this material. And so you're absolutely right. You can't heal what you can't feel. And I think good thinking and good feeling are both mandatory. And we're going to attempt to do both in every one of our sessions. So thank you and you're welcome. I, I'm glad to Glad, I'm hoping that I can help all of us feel more. I'm hoping that you can tell, even though I'm talking to a dadgum camera, I'm hoping that you can tell that I feel deeply about this material. I feel very passionate about it. Uh, this material uh, uh, taken in in a deep way, in a personal way, can transform and heal our lives and save our lives. And I really care deeply about that. <clears throat> I talked about black holes earlier, and I want to come back to that right now. These relationship blueprints that are a function of, of uh, innumerable interactions over our lives, starting from early on all the way through our lives, they become what physicists call strange attractors. And a strange attractor, an example of a strange attractor in the world of, of, uh, of uh, uh, physics is a, as a black hole. I asked the group today, what is a black hole? And I love the response. The response was this sound. That's a great definition black hole. And it wasn't just one individual, it was several people. And so I said, can you please give a word to that sound? 
and they said it's like a vacuum. And I think that's a great, a great image for it. Is that, uh, and, and people had different associations to it. I liked one of them. He's, uh, this one individual said, a black hole doesn't permit even light to escape it. So it's got like a magnetic attraction to mass, to substance, and it sucks energy into its vortex. And it's black by virtue of the fact that no light is even allowed to emit. That's pretty amazing to imagine. Something has a gravitational force so strong that light can't even escape. Now, I know that there's better physicists than I, so I make no mistake about that, but it's meant as an analogy for these early blueprints or templates that are laid down early in life. They serve as black hole attractors for later relationships. These early blueprints set up our expectations. We bring those to relationship. And as with the previous example of bringing an assumption that I'm going to be betrayed or cheated on in a relationship, I end up drawing to myself the very thing that I'm most averse to. And it's one of the tragic paradoxes of these blueprints is that they, that they, they, draw, they draw similar experiences that have been disappointing or traumatic to those who've already experienced plenty of trauma. Thank you very much. In fact, I asked the group today, why would any of us seek out uh, dysfunctional relationships if that's what we come from developmentally? And uh, one person made it clear, we don't do this consciously. Who of us wakes up in the morning and goes, how can I be in the most messed up relationship possible today? None of us do that, obviously. But there's a pre-verbal, or I'd say unconscious, template that, that, that is there that's guiding us. And so the question is, what about that pre-conscious template would draw us to repeat our dysfunctional past? Simply put, and the group discussed this today, is that, that familiarity draws us very powerfully. In fact, if there's an ironclad um, correlation in psychology, it's between the experience of not knowing or ambiguity and increased anxiety. And so, ironically and sadly, I'll be drawn to the familiar to reduce anxiety, even though what I'm drawn to will, over the long haul, increase my distress, increase my anxiety. So for the short term, I'll, I'll, I'll pick the familiar, I'll pick the status quo. And we all do that. <clears throat> so let me go back to this concept of stages versus stages. A state is a momentary experience. A stage is a more permanent uh, baseline of expectation. And how does that go then in terms of our inheriting from our early environment? If you've been, if you've been exposed to disappointment, of, of uh, uh, repeated disappointments, enough so that that's a chronic stage of, of uh, uh, insufficient, excuse me, insufficient nurturing, how does that go in later relationships? Well, the truth is, if we've experienced a stage of early deprivation, of adequate nurturance, of adequate nourishment, chances are that we'll bring a shame proneness, is the term from psychology, that will be shame prone as a stable stage to our later relationships. And so we may even experience moments, states, that feel really good in a relationship, but the fact is our baseline, our expectation, which we also evoke from our relationships, is this stage, this stable stage of inadequate nourishment. It's as if, it's as if you habituated, it's as if you got used to uh, insufficient oxygen. And so you learned how to survive on insufficient oxygen. And when given the opportunity to choose for an oxygen-rich chamber in which you could be really maximally nourished, you'd continue to choose for the oxygen deprivation. And um, for many of you listening, you may relate to this in terms of how it is that it seems like that it wasn't enough that you had the, uh, the frustrations and disappointments developmentally early on, but those have repeated themselves throughout your life. And so in this sense, you could say the poor get poorer. There's good news, and I'd like to move towards the good news here. And that is, is when trust and compassion are provided in relationship, these earlier stages of, of, uh, of disappointment and of shame, those can actually be reversed. It starts by experiencing states of nurturance, states of compassion, states of loving kindness, states of healthful communication. And those states, when they get chained together, begin to create 
a new neuronal network in the brain, literally, where it's associated with new expectations, new ways of being. And these new ways of being can lead to a self-stage, a self-stage of, uh, of stable, uh, reliable compassion for oneself. The technical term for this in psychology is earned security. If you've grown up in uh, a statistically elevated amount of adverse childhood experiences where you've been, you've been let down repeatedly over and over again across your life, uh, there's a high probability that you'll experience what's referred to as insecurity, emotional insecurity. And it will manifest either in terms of desperately seeking connection or in kind of radically avoiding any kind of connection. Two ways of dealing with that insecurity. I'll either pursue you, um, cling on to you in hopes of having you love me, or I'll reject any form of connection or caring for you. And both of those are temporary strategies to deal with this insecurity. And the good news is that if I can be exposed to an oxygen-rich nurturing environment in adulthood, is that over time I can actually correct those old dysfunctional stages and actually create a new stage. And this is referred to as earned security, is that insecurity can be actually transformed over time and be replaced by earned security. And earned is a good word for it because these blueprints uh, are earned through hard work. <clears throat> How do we do that? We do that the way we talked about it today. We do that by choosing for a new family, <clears throat> choosing for a new healthy family. If you've grown up in an unhealthful environment and have repeated that pattern, what would it be like to heal those long-term patterns by being with people that really do provide uh, love and valuing, mirroring of your ambition, seeing who you really are, uh, wanting the best for you. All of that, to surround ourselves with that, is to choose for transformation. So we're going to close today with an exercise. And I'd ask for you to pull out a piece of paper if you have it. And if you're working on a tablet, you can use that too. I'm going to give you a series of questions and ask for you to jot just a couple of responses to begin with today. And then you can follow up after our meeting today by filling this out more. You can also follow up today by asking questions online through YouTube, through Ask an Addiction Specialist, through Beginnings Treatment Center. However you want to access today's video, you're very welcome to submit questions. Some of you did last week and I appreciated that. I'll do my best to respond to you. So I want to ask one question to begin with. I want you to ask yourself, how have I, how have you been shaped by early experience regarding having compassion for yourself? What kinds of expectations, what kinds of self-perceptions have I developed as a function of growing up in the world that I grew up in? Give it a moment's thought to that and write down what comes first to mind. If you were teased and taunted by those close to you through your growing up years, how has that affected, do you believe, your ability to have compassion for yourself? If you were rejected or if you were abused by those given responsibility to care for you, how do you imagine that that's shaped your own capacity to nurture yourself? Here's the second question. How have those same forces shaped your ability to be compassionate towards others? I remember in one of my groups last week, an individual said his central vulnerability is lack of tolerance. He said he grew up with a father who was intolerant, and he's just as exactly as intolerant as his father. And he hates that he is, but he's inherited that same behavior pattern. That'd be an example of how it is that an early nurturing environment has shaped a template that even though it's difficult, it's painful for him, it's hard for him to shake that. And so he ends up not being able to experience compassion for other people. How have your early in, uh, environmental influences affected your ability to be compassionate to others? Okay. I do want you to come back to this after this group today and reflect on this. There's a lot of richness if you can journal into this uh, in more detail. There's a third question. 
want you to ask yourself, and I'm going to ask myself, where might I find new possibilities for transforming these blueprints that Dr. Bob's talking about? Where in my life do I have individuals, people that I can count on to be good friends, friends that can confront me and do so in love, friends that won't abandon me, won't judge me, that know who I am and want to do all they can to fan the flames of who I really am emerging? Where might I find these new possibilities? The possibility of building new blueprints. Write down a couple of people at least that come to mind that would be good for you. When I work with individuals, men and women seeking recovery from addiction, they'll oftentimes say, it's here in this room. It's other addicts seeking recovery with whom I can be honest, who I can count on for confronting me when I'm not being genuine or faithful to what it is I need to be working on. And they'll confront me, but they know the, the, the humbling nature of addiction and, and recovery, and they know that they won't judge me. Who do you have like that in your life? Now I want to ask you another question. Can you imagine what self-compassion might feel like? Some way, sometimes it's helpful for me to look at it this way. If I imagine myself as a young boy, oftentimes I'll picture myself at seven, eight, nine years of age. I think that was the beginnings of kind of self-awareness for me. For some of you, it begins earlier. For some, it begins later. But just picture yourself at some age in your life and imagine that you're coming in as an adult caring figure now and extending compassion to that younger self. What might self-compassion feel like to you? Can you imagine that? See if you can write down a couple of associations to what that might feel like. And while we're at, at that, another question. What might compassion for others feel like? Imagine the blueprints shifting and that it's possible over time to earn security within ourselves. And once with that security inside, maybe we're less likely to blame or ostracize other people. What might it feel like to have my go-to default reaction be one of compassion towards others? It's a funny thing about compassion, isn't it? I, it came up today in the group is that somebody can say that they love us, that they believe in us, and they can say those words, but it's typically the nonverbal that communicates that. You can feel that. And we talked about that in the group, is that our instincts can register whether something's true. There was a new member in the group, and I looked at him. I really valued his contributions today. And I looked at him, and I said, you can tell by looking at me how I feel about you, can't you? And uh, he said, yes, I can. Yes, I can. I knew I could say that with confidence because I knew what I was feeling inside. And if I wasn't feeling that, but tried to convince him with words, as I think of it, the body rarely lies. Words can lie. Words can deceive. But our body, we have a built-in survival. One person put it, it's like the animal inside. The animal instincts uh, uh, can pick up on whether somebody's being truthful or not. And so imagine what it would be like to be able to exhibit that kind of compassion towards other people and have it ring true, not only for you, but for them. I guess what I'm asking here is, can you, can you allow yourself to imagine? Is it possible to imagine that change uh, is available for all of us? 25% of us adult Americans are addicted to substance, 25% of us. One out of four are addicted to alcohol, nicotine, or other drugs. 90% of, of us have at least one behavioral addiction ongoing. 90% of us. I think the other 10% are either lying or didn't understand the question. <laughs> we eat too much, we sex too much, we gamble too much, we work too much. We video game too much. We social media too much. You can go down the list. You know, the crazy thing about it is, is that you can send me and you, whoever, whoever you are, you can send us up to UCLA right now, just up the road from where we are. Hook us up to an MRI. And if I'm addicted to porn and you're addicted to gambling, 
uh, and another person's addicted to cocaine, our brain systems that are activated by our addiction are virtually identical, and you can't tell who's what. The brain systems involved in addiction are virtually identical. And so what we're talking about is a universal issue here. It's why I've mentioned in the past, and I'll mention again today, is that addiction, which comes from the Latin root addictus, simply means to be enslaved. Addictus is the Latin word for slave. Which is to say that all of us struggle with being enslaved. And if we can universalize that and level the playing field, then we're all in the soup together on this one. And so can I imagine myself changing from being a slave to being free? Can you imagine that? I'll leave you with that for today. I would really recommend that you spend some time going back to the earlier questions that I asked. How have I been shaped uh, by early experiences, develop important relationships regarding self-compassion? How have I been shaped in terms of compassion to others? Who might I seek to help re-engineer uh, the ways that I view myself, the way I view others? View others? And how might it feel to be compassionate towards myself? How might it be to have my first reflex to be compassionate towards others? And can I allow myself to imagine that? What does that feel like? There's another comment that's come in. Let me read this comment. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing all your knowledge. You're very welcome. Thank you for absorbing and being here to receive all of my knowledge. I'm grateful for the shoulders on which I stand. This person says knowledge is a power and helps, uh, helps this person to stay strong. I fully agree with that. I believe that good knowledge uh, liberates. I think that shame paralyzes us. And shame is uh, universal, and it's a cancer right at the heart of addiction. And I feel like that good information helps to free us. And so you're welcome. I'm honored to be able to bring solid information to you each week. This person says, I need to keep learning with an open mind, with listening ears, and have the courage to change. Don't we all? It takes tremendous courage to change. It takes tremendous courage to be who we are. It takes tremendous courage to create a new life for ourselves. And whether you're uh, in recovery yourself from addiction, uh, have a family member, a loved one who's recovering, or worked with individuals from recovery, I don't think there's any greater charge. I shared with the group today, there are people in my life that say, how can you stand working with addiction day in, day out? Isn't that depressing? And, and I shared this in the group today because there was a man who came through the group today just on his way through, and he was glowing. And I got tears in my eyes, and I, I knew him by name. I named him, and I said, do you guys get any, do you have any idea how gratifying it is to see where he's at when just six weeks ago he was dead, dead to the world? And I said, who could be luckier than us who are in recovery because you have the possibility of radical, rapid change? First of all, it comes with getting ourselves clear of substance and then changing our lives in the ways we're talking about today. I feel like that hope springs eternal and it's very concrete. I saw it in that man's eyes today. It's so gratifying to me. I want to thank you for joining us today. Hope you'll come next week. Hope you'll interact with me online. You're welcome to go to my website. It's drbobweathers.com. There's a place there you can ask questions. You can come to our archived uh, 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 podcasts and review anything that we've done in the past. We're up in the, the mid-20s now of podcasts. We're about a half a year of podcasts. And there's a whole treasure trove of resources just there alone. And I would love to interact with you about any of that material. The, the goal is to share the material freely and, and have it make a difference in your lives. Uh, next week, we're going to be looking at the roots of addiction. I hope that you'll come back next week and join us. Thank you again for joining us today. Please send links to your friends so that they can view this. It's uh, for the good of all of us to perpetuate good programs like this. Uh, blessings to all of you. I wish you a good week. Thanks for joining us today. And be sure to be in contact uh, either through this website or through my own website. I'll see you soon. Dr. Bob Weathers, the One-Armed Bandit, signing off. Blessings. <laughs>